Welcome to the Female Founder Squad podcast. Hey lovelies, thank you for joining us today. So today is the first of what I'm calling the funding series and it's all about the various options for funding. Not every female founder wants to go down the route of raising investment and what I want to do is chat through all the various options available to founders today. I'm so delighted that we're joined by Mary Jane Browers. Mary Jane is a friend of mine and she's worked closely with early stage startups for over 10 years now and has a huge amount of experience in the investment world. So welcome Mary Jane, thank you for joining us. So we spoke about this for a while haven't we and we decided that actually the best way forward for these podcasts is to split them into sections because investment and funding for startups is such a huge topic, probably too big for one podcast. So this is our first one in the series, and this is early stage investment, early stage funding. We're going to cover bootstrapping, family and friends rounds, other potential funding routes such as grants, crowdfunding, and then we're going to move into angel. So let's start off bootstrapping. I started this startup just with an idea, no funding, but a burning idea that I just had to get out there. And luckily for me, the software was already built. I didn't have to go out and create the software. It was off the shelf. But for other startups who you and I know and work with all the time, it's not quite so easy, such an easy route. And so bootstrapping can be personally expensive on the savings for startups at the beginning, can't it? Yes, very, very much so. And in in some ways, cash is only part of the picture because for a lot of early stage businesses, it's the time and commitment that's the biggest ask. And some of my some of my colleagues would sit anybody down who says they want to start a business and and ask them, Are you sure? Are you sure you really want to do this? This is going to be really, really difficult. It's going to take over your life. Are you happy to engage in a process that is going to have that impact on you? And and in some ways, from the point of view of, of funding and support for an early stage business, I think that com- you have to have that conversation with yourself. And because, as I say, the, the cash is only part of the story, and the the time commitment is going to be be considerable. I know I can totally vouch for that. Having done this started almost 10 weeks ago, now part of the 5am club, went into that 5am club kicking and screaming, really. I'm now used to it now, but it's something that I've had to commit to in order to commit to this side hustle that I'm doing because like most startups it started as a side hustle as a project as something that you do while you're working full time and you have kids and you know you have a whole other commitment but it's it's like a passion project that you know it's something you have to do it's something you have to give give it 100% but to do that you have to fit it in and around your life so you're right the time side of things is a huge element of that and i guess for bootstrapping these my what I've seen is in my full time job as community manager is when do startups go from bootstrapping side hustling into committing into okay this can actually this is actually going somewhere this could actually be something really really big and I find that that's really the crossover because it takes a lot for people to give up a job to to go into developing something full time what's your experience on that and when when do people normally do that so if I if I can take a, a, a little step back one of the the books that I would recommend, and in some ways, this is what we've just been been talking about, is the how to start a business without any money. You, you don't necessarily get into that position of deciding when am I going to take external investment? Because you know what? You've managed to start your business without any external money and you're funding that business almost from the get-go with revenue that you're generating. So if you can bring forward revenue generation in whatever business you're undertaking, you may never have to make that decision. Okay. Now, 
as you as you develop the business, I think that's almost like it's another, it's a, like a personal evolution because you had that side hustle. You really wanted to, to see if you could make it work. And then the side hustle becomes your main focus and it's working. It's okay. It's covering your costs. You're enjoying it. But how much more could it be? And that's when the you have to make that decision because it's a case of, well, I could carry on with what I'm doing, but I could do, do so much more. And it's not everybody, every entrepreneur who is personally suited to make that transition. There are a lot of entrepreneurs who've lived with this idea for so long, created this entity. They don't want to give it up. They want to retain control and that's a valid position to be in. And really, it's a case of accepting, I, I do want to do something different with this idea. And that's when you start thinking about, okay, if I sell part of my business, I'm losing some control, I'm getting investment, but that will enable me to do so much more with the idea. And it's not everybody who knows that at the beginning. And some people um, never get there, and that's not a bad thing. It's just they don't get there. Others make that decision. No, I don't want to. I want to retain 100% control of this business. I'm not going to take any external investment. And then there are others, and a lot of this depends on where you're founding your business. So in central Scotland, for example, there's a really vibrant early stage tech uh, community and a lot of founders start with the assumption that they will be securing external investment in fact they take their business only a very short way from from founding before they go out to to attract external investment and that seems to be the assumption in the central belt of Scotland but then if you go to Aberdeen for example that's much less the case there's there is the, the the tech community isn't as well developed. There aren't as many investors around. And a lot more of the entrepreneurs in Aberdeen want to take the business further down the track before they even think of external investment. And so it's interesting to see the differences, but a lot of it comes down to you as an individual and also where you are. So yeah. that's even before you get onto the type of business you're developing. And I think you're right. I think you touched on a couple of things there. Investment isn't for everyone. Investment isn't the route that is automatically assumed that every startup will go down. A lot of people are quite happy to continue to bootstrap and eventually go into positive revenue and, and just use that for growth. But there's also an argument that bootstrapping, like you mentioned, bootstrapping can also stifle growth in a sense. And it's that sort of ability to see the bigger picture sometimes that perhaps although you went in into it or the beginning thinking I'm going to I'm going to you know retain control and retain my company as a whole that you know you might not be able to see the fact that you retaining that control is actually stifling the growth have you seen have you had much experience of that oh that's that's very true and i think that's the decision that you're making if you decide you want to keep 100% of the company it'll be 100% of a smaller business that's yeah. that's almost inevitable and and that's really the the calculation that you have to make so am i happy to have 50% so half of a business that's going to be 100 times the size yeah and yeah. so you might be able to get comfortable with that but you've lost uh, you're losing control so if that's the thing that's important to you then really what you've decided is you're happy to to be controlling a smaller business uh, so mm -hmm. absolutely that is it's 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 almost inevitable that the company will be smaller without external investment but the other thing where i perhaps see more evidence of, of growth being stifled is, for example, in a, in a tech business, which the, the people who have founded the tech business have expertise that they can sell. So an hourly rate. Okay. And 
then there's the dilemma. Well, I need to I need to get some contracts to bring some cash in. So you do your contracts, bring the cash in, and then you have less time to focus on developing the product that you're also working on. And and that's a scenario where you definitely see companies, startups losing their sense of direction. And the consultancy work, while it brings in cash, is is undermining their business model, which otherwise would be investable. Uh, so it's yeah. that area where you certainly see, see growth being stifled and a pretty strong argument for taking external investment because that's a scenario where investment can really unblock the, the growth and development of, of the business idea. Yeah. And also, I think as well, it's such a huge undertaking to be, if you're a solopreneur, for example, and you are bootstrapping, you are everything. You have every role. So you do, you know, you're the CEO, you're the social media person, you're the finance person, you're the sales person. And it is really a huge, huge undertaking. And I admire anybody who does that on a long, a long-term basis. I, I really do. One the the next thing that I want to move on to is, and I think this is the sort of in between area. So you can still bootstrap, but reach out to family and friends to help you out for for your an initial investment without going down the formal route of angel or VC investment. Go family and friends back to bootstrapping, and that could be enough just to see you through. But I've never really understood the whole process of the family and friends round, and that's something that's always. I've always been curious about, I mean, how formal does that have to get? Obviously, family and friends, no matter who, you know how close they are, surely they must want some contractual, something contractual in place that says, I'm going to lend you X amount of money and I want X amount of return. How, what, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would want to go down that route in the sense that it's, it's, it's an ask, right? It's a big ask. Hi, mom, dad, thanks for tea. By the yeah. way, could you lend me 50,000? You know, mm-hmm. uh, what kind of money are we talking about usually for family and friends? What's what's your experience around that? Well, my, my experience is that it t- tends not to be well formulated. In the same way, as I was saying, one of the big asks is, is the time you spend uh, developing your business and then the the family and friends support could also be in in lieu really so you might move into your parents garage or something like that so you you're making use of facilities provided by your friends and or your family and on the whole people want to see you succeed so they tend to be happier with a with a less formal arrangement. But if you are talking about taking substantial amounts of money from, if you're in, in the position to do that, from your family members, then I think from a personal point of view, it would be preferable to document everything because you might really mess up your relationships with your friends and family because you don't know what's going to happen. You're hugely ambitious. These people who you've known all your life or have known for many years believe in you, and that's why they're prepared to support you. But for all sorts of reasons, well, we don't need to look further than the pandemic. The world can change, and it could be that it doesn't turn out as you've planned. So I think from a personal point of view, it, it is a good idea to to speak to a lawyer and get some proper documentation in place. As I say, as much for you as the founder, as for the friends and family who probably just want to see it work out for you and are quite supportive and would be happy to go without documentation. Yeah. And, and so in those circumstances, then what's the normal return on, of investment that, that family and friends round would expect? It, from a family and friends perspective, I think it, it, the re, why are they investing? They're investing because they want to support you. And, and you know what? Seeing you being successful is probably sufficient return to your mom, really. Yeah. So I think it, if we're talking about investing in a business at a very early stage, then the potential multiple is significantly greater. The difference with a is that you are investing in one business 
Yeah. And most investors, they're going to deliver the sorts of returns that you just talked about because you can assume the rule of thumb is you need to invest in at least 10 different businesses to get those sorts of returns. So it makes your parents one single bet on you. Pressure, pressure. So you, you could be hugely successful, but ideally they should back each of their 10 children to be fairly comfortable about getting a return over. So I go back then to my point about the protecting your relationships. And yeah, probably yeah. You need to be, be very clear about the risks, even though they believe in you and you believe in yourself. You need to be clear about the risks and, and to have the investment properly documented. From a, from a personal point of view, I have heard some founders Generally speaking, entrepreneurs don't need any external motivation, but the fact that your parents have mortgaged their home and to put money into your business is a pretty strong motivator for some entrepreneurs I've met. Oh, I mean, I can't, I couldn't even imagine the pressure that would put on somebody. I just, yeah. could you imagine? Yeah. No, you've probably got enough pressure without going there. So I just want to caveat this whole podcast and and say, and I should have said this at the beginning, this investment side of startups is something that is fairly new to me. So I, what's good about that is I am learning with every listener and I will probably ask all the stupid questions that the listeners with, with my limited experience are thinking in their heads anyway. So be prepared for silly questions. And I have no problem with being the fool on this just to get a full understanding of all for, of the ins and outs of investment. You know, I, I will definitely ask some silly questions. So it should give you a laugh anyway. So we've gone bootstrapping. We've gone family, friends, other alternative routes before we get into the angel stuff. And the angel stuff is really, really interesting. But I know... I mean, I, and I do have experience of startups in our community that don't want to go out for investment, that chase grants. I don't really have much experience with the grants. I know that writing these grant applications can be exhausting from, from my conversations with some founders. What's, what's your experience in that side of things? So, so I think that grants can work very well for founders, particularly when you're Developing your MVP, your minimum viable product, or working out if there's a business there at all. So if you haven't worked out whether there is a, something that is commercially viable, it's going to be a waste of everybody's time if you go out and try and get external equity investment. Because you won't be convincing telling the story if you haven't worked out yourself yet that there is yeah. a story to tell and I think it's that general area where grant funding can be can be very useful so you have an outline idea and it looks like there could be something in it and that's really where grant funding can can make yeah. a significant contribution to the to the ecosystem yeah, and I think it I think it really helps from what I, I understand anyway. I think it really helps the proof of concept, you know, allowing you to build that initial product and then use it as a way of um, developing a project that allows you to prove the concept that there is a demand, there is a customer base, right? That's right. Yeah. Right. So crowdfunding is also fairly new, but mm -hmm. um, has really, really taken off. I mean, how does that work when you've got hundreds of people potentially investing in your company? That it that can create some issues down the line, and the the advantage of the platforms, so the various platforms that are out there that you can manage your crowdfunding on, so they deal with the legal aspects of the raise. What you you end up with is hundreds and hundreds of shareholders, ultimately, and. While you don't necessarily have to speak to those individual shareholders as as a as a founder, because you can channel the the messaging through the platform, mm -hmm. later on when you are looking for external investment, so if if you move on to the stage where you're looking for 
and say angel investment or VC investment, those investors are going to have to get comfortable with your cloud-funded investor base. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and if you just think about this is this is um, putting the cup for the horse in a way, but if, if we're talking about the exit of a, of a business, so if you're selling your company, uh, who's sitting around the table negotiating the sale? Well, you are as the as as the um, entrepreneur, but arguably your investors are too. So it's not going to be an easy conversation if you effectively end up with a hundred people sitting around that table. You're not yeah. going to get anywhere. Uh, you're not going to get an agreed uh, position on anything anytime quickly. So there, there can be downsides of yeah. funding. It it isn't very heavily regulated. So there's a light regulation in the area but the other thing to to perhaps be aware of is is potential um, reputational risk because it's good to know who who's backed you and yeah. it could be that there are some people who are backing you and and you're, you're you're happy to have their money but if you knew who they were you wouldn't necessarily want them on your yeah, um, yeah. As investors in your business, so it works. It actually work, probably works both ways. There is an, mm-hmm. an element of there. There isn't the same control as there is, say, with angel investment. So, and that lower level of control, while it makes it quite straightforward and easy to do, does uh, create some additional risks. Hmm. Okay. I've I've invested a, a couple of times on crowdfunding platforms and startups, but I invest on the basis that that's it. I'm just contributing and I'm walking away. I, I don't expect a return. You know, I just want to support. So I think I think the majority of people, although I could be completely generalizing here, I do think the majority of people who know they're investing in startups are just contributing because they want to see the startup succeed. Yeah. So the, what I've done is bought effectively at um, prepaid for products yeah um so that's similar there's always a risk because the startup might not manage to produce the product but that's 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 what i've done and then there's a more direct reward for the investor because they get the product Mm -hmm. and i think that if you are looking to to develop a significant business so you are you believe you have an idea that will grow then you have to think quite carefully before you use a crowdfunding platform yeah yeah okay so let's go into the angel side of things mm-hmm. so just to recap you are currently investment consultant with SIS Ventures enterprise fund manager at Opportunity Northeast and associate of Mint Ventures. You've had previous experience at Archangels and have worked closely with early stage startups for the last 10 years and equity venture equity investments for the previous for the past 25 years, shall we say? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And so angel investment is kind of your niche. I'm not an, an angel investor personally. Okay. So there are rules about that, but I have worked with angel investment groups. Yeah. So what I found really interesting in um, digging around, doing some research for this was, do you know where the term angel investor came from? Yeah, it was back in the day. In fact, there are still angel investors who are the sorts of people who, who back plays and films yeah how a lot of angel groups still function I know it's great I didn't know that so angel market has grown significantly in the last 10 years the one significant difference angels are individuals who are investing their own money that's right yes yeah so I think that straight away is obviously why they're called angel investors. The the amounts that they can invest are usually between 50 to 250 individually. So it's not the amounts they can invest, it's the amounts they want to invest. 
Yeah. So if you are particularly wealthy and you see an opportunity that you really like, there's no reason why you wouldn't put, say, a million pounds in to the business. There's no upper, well, there's no upper limit on on a straight on a simple investor investment level. You want to benefit from tax breaks, then there are limits on the amount you can invest. There's, there's huge tax benefits in being an angel investor. So in the UK, these are known as the EIS and the SEIS. That's right. And there are all sorts of things to to say here because so, so we, we're talking about the tax breaks that are available in the UK. So most angel investors self-certified high net worth individuals. So this is how the angel investment space is is controlled and regulated. So these people are investing money that they have self-certified they can afford to lose. So there's no there's no advice in in the angel investing slice of the market. There's no advice. These individuals have their own money and they can afford to lose their own money. Yeah. So I'll just jump in here. So there's two mm-hmm. types of so high net worth. Mm-hmm. And these are, are individuals who have an income of £100,000 or more with net assets of £250,000 out with their pension and their residence. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you've got something called the certified sophisticated investor. Sophisticated investor point um, is people who have the knowledge themselves to make the investment decision uh, so this this all goes it, it all comes back to the the risk so you can afford to do it because you've got so much money it doesn't matter if you lose the investment yeah. or you understand what you're doing so you 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 work in say in in investments you you work in a financial role as as would be the case if you're a director of a company so that's an indication of your business understanding and one of the other ways is if you complete a training course and a number of the angel groups now provide training so that potential members can follow the training course and at the end of that after spending 12 months I'm sorry, I'm not sure, it might be six months with the investment group, attending events, working their way through the the training course, they then are in a position to, they have the knowledge and understanding to make their own decisions. And and that's that's how this this part of the investment market is is controlled. So that's the assumption. If you're a sophisticated investor, you know what you're doing. Yeah, but they're a crucial part of the startup scene. Angels are the the in-between guys who come and, you know, really give you your first shot. So for most business startups, there is an angel group out there that would be interested in what you're doing. Yeah, so that, that's great. And and they are the, the early stage investors, the people who will listen to your business idea and spend time with you, invest in you and continue to support you until you take the company to the next stage. Yeah. So let's go into those tax breaks that that allow angel investors to make that investment with the knowledge, knowing that not every investment will be successful. What's their safety net? So the, the tax break, what the tax breaks do is that they they improve the risk profile as as you as you say angel investing early stage investing is very risky and you could say well so nobody in their right mind would do this and the, it's very questionable to be fair when you when you look at the stats yeah <laughs> so what the what the tax break does is is improves the risk profile of the investment so depending on on your the, the tax regime that you're under basically you you get if you, if you put and and depending on whether it's SEIS or EIS but 
But generally speaking, the, the, the idea is you invest £100 in a business, say, and the tax, you get immediately get £50 tax back. So you get £100 equity value for a significantly smaller personal financial exposure. So that's how the, the risk profile is, is improved. And the idea is then that that increases capacity in the market. Yeah. And, it yeah. and that's, I guess, that's that's what encourages these high net worth individuals to be that early stage investors, which are really crucial. Angel investors are generally tax driven, but that's not the only driver. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... Let's go down that route then. Let's say I've I've got my startup. I've done a family and friends round. Things are going well. Revenue. Do I need to be revenue positive? Do I need to have product launch, have paying customers in profit? Is there a, a criteria generally, or is can it just is it just a, the investor could come along and just think I'm completely awesome and just decide that I have the best startup and they're going to invest in me regardless of whether I've even launched. Yeah. So again, it depends on the nature of your business and the investor in question. So a lot of angels will invest in pre-revenue businesses. Because they are early stage investors, the the, the company needs investment to get to the, the next stage, which might be revenue generation. The angels are unlikely to take a blind blind punt in the sense that they will either have knowledge of the, the the sector that you're operating in. They might have invested in similar companies before. They might have previous personal experience of working in the sector that or the in the market that you're targeting. So there will be other factors that mean that the angels can get comfortable uh, investing in a pre-revenue yeah. proposal. So no, there's yeah. no, and each angel group will have different criteria. So you need to learn those that will depend on, on the group. There are some investors that will only invest when you've reached 1 million turnover. Yeah. And you mentioned there, you mentioned the angel groups, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's quite crucial because it's usually, I think I had a stat somewhere and it said that 70% of angels usually invest within those groups or, or syndicates. It's actually quite difficult to measure because the very high, the, the high net worth individuals who invest on their own don't necessarily announce that they're doing it. Yeah. So there's there's less market information about the individuals who who choose to invest on their own, but it, I think that's that's probably a reasonable indication. And mm-hmm. the majority, the advantage of investing through or with a group is that there is a support mechanism there, and there are other people investing alongside you. Again, that spreads the risk. Yeah. Um, so yep. there, are, there are huge benefits to investing through a group with, uh, along with other group members. Okay. And as well as the, the, we've talked about the benefits for the angels. What about the benefits for the startup then? Obviously you're getting, you're getting that initial investment, which I guess is validation for any startup and a business, regardless of if you have customers, you know, I guess it's maybe perhaps validation of, yes, I can grow. There's potential growth here. And I think that for anyone who's developed a startup, you know, that, that must be a great feeling. So what would be the equity that you would generally release to angels? Ultimately, it is down to negotiation. And really, the main driver here is commercial potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if your business is, well, if you have created a lifestyle business, so that's one that will keep you and your family in the way they have become accustomed, nobody's going to invest in you yeah. because there's nothing in it for them. If your business idea is sufficient to attract external investment, that means, as as you suggested, Zoe, that it has potential and 
it's not just you who believes it. Somebody else believes there's potential because they've invested in you. Now, investors, we were talking about the chances, the probability of a successful outcome earlier. Most angel investors are looking, if they have a portfolio of investments, they're looking at something like a 20% IRR. What that What's the IRR? Internal rate of return. So that's a, a measure of investment success. And, okay. and, and what that pretty much equates to is if you invest in 10 businesses, one of them does really, really well. Uh, two or three of them maybe return the money, perhaps twice, three times. And the remaining seven fail completely. So that's the that's the scenario. And when an investor is looking at the opportunity, what they're trying to work out is how big is this going to get? So what's the potential? How much investment will it need to achieve that outcome? Yeah. So I'm looking for a return on my investment. Mm-hmm. Does my 100,000 investment have to equate to 50% of the business to get me that return? Does yeah. Could it equate to 10% of the business, 1% or 0.1%? So really it's the whole, the, 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 the scenario, there's no r- rule <laughs> there's no there's no rule here because otherwise yeah. it would be easy yes exactly yeah. so so at this point then it's it's really crucial that you not just go with any investor or the first investor or investors it's a bit like a co-founder you need to know that you can work with these people you need to know that these these people have the, your best interests at heart what from a startup's point of view would be the top areas to look at or criteria to to know that you're going to choose well so I think most angel groups believe they will help you to be successful yeah Uh, some of them will and some of them won't and that is you're quite right Zoe to say that it's a bit like choosing a a co-founder in the sense that you you need to develop a very good working relationship with Uh, your angel investors if you're both going to have a successful outcome so it's it's well worth taking your time and choosing the right investor Uh, Mm -hmm. I think angel groups or and angels in general will say it's it's a lot more than the money it's not just the money but that cuts both ways so if you're thinking it's just the money, you're you're making a mistake. It is more yeah. than the money. And you need to make sure that you acknowledge that and and go through the um, process of, of seeking investment, bearing that in mind, because the it's more than it's more than just the money could be a threat just as much as an opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Is is it a similar process to VCs? Is it around those warm introductions? Is it around the networking side of things? Where do angels find their deal flow? Is it social media, you know, references, introductions? How how do they find that deal flow? So the in certainly in Scotland, because the angel market is is well developed. The, there are numerous ways for angel groups to to source their deal flow, and there is a degree of competition for the for the best deals, which could be to your advantage as a as a founder. The, there is a bit of a pipeline in in Scotland, for example, with the various business plan company creation competitions and early stage funders such as Scottish Edge, say or the Converge Challenge for businesses that are coming out of the university network. Those initiatives rather create potential deal flow and a lot of the investors will attend, say, the Converge Award uh, ceremony. So they see these opportunities being showcased or the Scottish Edge finals, for example, again, you this is an opportunity to attend that and you see multiple companies presenting. 
Many of the angel groups also have close relationships with, particularly with the universities, so that they're seeing opportunities early on. Mm-hmm. And uh, the University of Edinburgh, for example, has Edinburgh Innovations, and that team is specifically tasked with supporting entrepreneurship and innovation in the university and encouraging mm-hmm. a company creation. So that is definitely a place for investors to to focus. There are a number of meetup groups now and various entrepreneurship clubs. So if you get the chance to pitch, the the chances are that there'll be investors in the audience or in the room. And I think if you are on the lookout for investment, you should treat every single conversation you have as a pitch of your business because you never know who you're speaking to. Are angels then restricted geographically normally then? Do they normally just stick to their geographical networks? Yeah. So because angels, one of the important parts of angels, angel investing rather, is the being able, investing shoulder to shoulder with the founders and being there to work with you to uh, achieve your ambitions, you kind of need to be close by to do that effectively. So Mm -hmm. most of the angel investment groups have a fairly limited geographical area that they will invest in. And although um, the European Union has supported cross-border investment within, within Europe, but it's it's a challenge and it's a challenge yeah. for all sorts of reasons because of the one I've just described where angels like to be close to the companies that they're investing in because different countries have different tax regimes. So why would you, in, uh, we're saying if you get your £50 back on the 100 that you invest in the UK, why would you go and, and invest £100 in, in Belgium, say, and not get any cash back? Uh, so, yeah. so there yeah. are lots of reasons that bring angel investing in particular to in, into a fairly limited ge- geographical area okay all right so let's say you are you have gone out you've met an investor you're you know discussing potential investment the process around that is you know the initial screening then you go through into a sort of more detailed screening and this is usually where you would pitch in front of a group of angels is that correct not necessarily, because each angel group has a, has its own process. The best way to you, you need to look at the investment group's website and see what the process is. So more and more of the partly not just because of the pandemic, but uh, a number of the investor groups now expect you to do everything online. Yeah, they won't speak to you. They will not speak to you. There's no point in in ringing the doorbell. You know, even if you could do that, they will not speak to you unless you have applied online. And there's an automated element. So it's a bit like applying for jobs these days. So there's some AI in the system. And if the computer says no, that's it. So we know all the, the figures around the, the lack of the lack of balance with VC funding for female founders. Let's say, do you think that starts then with the the angel funding? Because only VC, only uh, female founders who I guess have gone through the angel funding rounds to then move on to VC rounds, and there's only what four percent of UK female founders get VC funding. Is the is the stats? similar within the angel rounds so i i think the answer i I think it's almost inevitably the case and i i've worked with a number of different um, groups of investors and they have had very different membership profiles but i think it's almost inevitable when you're looking at a group of angels who are who are all men who've made their money in male-dominated industries, that that it is very difficult for them not to not to follow their their unconscious bias because they to themselves they represent success. So they're looking for somebody who who looks like they do. 
so it's almost inevitably the case that there are is similar bias in the angel uh, angel end of the market but there are more and more groups not both vcs and of angel investors who are acknowledging that and trying to address the bias and and if if in in some ways certainly at this stage which is relatively early on in the process they're addressing the bias by only backing women founders yep. so somebody yep. like mint ventures for example is really keen to to start to address that the lack of balance in the investment market and and is prioritizing women-led businesses yeah there there is definitely a rise of vcs and angel um groups who are just focusing on female-led startups now which is which is great and, and there's a few like you said mint, mint ventures and in scotland and, and a few others but there is definitely some some learning and some change to be had to have that more widespread that's for sure so just before we finish up there's two areas that i am completely clueless with regard to angel investment and it's it's the it's towards the exit of it what is the what's the transitional stage from angel into vc how do the angels and the vcs what how does that relationship where does it go from there okay so there isn't necessarily a logical progression from angel investment to vc if if you have a business idea that is attractive to vcs the chances are that a VC will be your first external investor, okay? Because the VCs do like to get in early in the right businesses. The the angels, because they are tax-driven investors, are very different animals from VCs. So as, as you said earlier, Zoe, the angels are investing their own money so their own, they feel very different about it because they're investing their own wealth and they benefit from these tax breaks. The VCs invest in a different way. And so they're not getting the tax breaks. They, they're investing third-party funds, completely different business model. So the result of that is that VCs and angels generally speaking, don't sit that well alongside each other. Yeah. And that makes that makes that sort of what might be con- considered to be a logical progression very difficult to achieve. However, many of the angel groups in Scotland are investing at similar levels to VCs. And so the larger angel groups are leading rounds of in excess of two million, so between two and five million. In, okay. Yeah. So in in some in some parts of the world that would be a hundred percent VC territory, but there are angel groups in Scotland operating in in that sort of deal size. So when you have angel groups that are capable of providing that level of investment. Do you need anything more than them? Not necessarily. Mm. Not mm-hmm. necessarily. Yeah. But the whole exit point, with go back to the tax break point. So you mm-hmm. lose your tax break if you get an exit in less than three years. Okay. So the assumption is that it will take at least three years for the business to, to grow and develop and, and, and achieve a successful exit. Okay. So there is a... From with the the tax um, tax driven investment, there's a built in ti- assumed timeline, and in reality, mm-hmm. that's quite reasonable because most businesses will not have achieved significant value inflection within a shorter period. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. So it's going to take a while, and most angel groups' expectation. Uh, these days is that if there is an exit within seven years that is fast yeah and so the the assumption is 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 yep maybe between five and ten years is is the the range of of a good exit and there are lots of businesses sitting in angel groups portfolios right now that have been in those portfolios for 20 years yeah and so there's no there's no 
real timeline that anybody's um, committing to. I think yeah. for the system for the system to work well, you do need the money to churn. So you need that those exits so that the investors get their return on their investment, which they can then reinvest in in new businesses. So it's in everybody's interest that there is uh, a churn in the portfolios. I think that we will tie this up for today. Our next session, I think we need to then move from Angel into the VC world. I think we could do about 10 podcasts on that topic alone. I think what's useful about these podcasts is there's just so much information around investment and funding that it's overwhelming, I think, for a lot of founders just to get to the nitty gritty and get to that sort of value pieces of information. I think what would be useful in the next session would be to go through that sort of terminology of, you know, term sheets and what's within a term sheet and, you know, what is that process? What does the due diligence look like? So that so that anyone listening to the podcast can get an understanding of the terminology and what will be expected of you as a as a founder, as a startup to have the documentation there. I think that would be really, really useful. And then moving into that sort of seed round of the VC world and and that and that process. How does that sound? Well I, I'm I've never worked for a VC as such. I've always worked for almost always worked for EIS investors. So I I can talk a wee bit about it, but it's, it's as an observer rather than a, yeah. uh, somebody yeah. who's actually been there and done it. So thank you so much for your time and thanks so much for all your input. And I will see you back sometime soon for uh, episode two. Mm-hmm. And um, thank you. Thanks for putting up with my silly questions. This is a whole new world of learning for me. So I think that's kind of, it's kind of good in a sense because I'm coming at it from an angle that I think some female founders will also be, you know, be coming at. Yeah, I I think you're you're right. And and it does, because in a way that this key point of making investment accessible is illustrated by that, isn't it? Because there are these silly questions that are, are never going to be answered if somebody doesn't ask because nobody's going to talk about it yeah it's a silly question but it's still there and it undermines confidence thanks so much you're awesome so i would just like to point out neither mary jane or i are tax or legal experts and everything we have mentioned and discussed in today's podcast are based on our own experiences and our opinions